This is exactly right. Clap it up. Clap it. <laughs> Ready? 2022. Let's do this thing. Woo! One, two, three. I was way up there. Oh, hello. hello. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Oh, I get it. And welcome, and welcome to my favorite murder. The podcast. That's Karen Kilgariff. And that's 2022's Georgia Hardstar. Oh, I'm a brand new lady. Look at her go. Look at me go. I got chamois and I'm fucking doing it. <laughs> Long <her> blonde hair. <laughs> you wouldn't recognize her. She's brand new. I'm a brand new lady in 2022. <laughs> Pantyhose. <laughs> I don't know. Something about like that reminded me of the eighties. Like working, working women now wear pantyhose. Yeah, you know, like, pantyhose and high top Reeboks. Let's do right. this thing. Go to the office. It's a brand Come new on. you. We're swinging briefcases on the subway. Hey, watch right. it, lady. <laughs> You're stepping right? on my toes with your Reeboks. What's up? Let Let's do this. <laughs> what oh. if we did the whole podcast just? continually encouraging each other to, to do it. Yeah. You get that, Karen. You go get it, girl. And you slay, girl. Slay. Take it here. Take it there. And bring it around. And bring it into 2022. <laughs> I feel very positive about this new year. How do you feel? Okay. I feel I haven't given it much thought, to be honest with you. Oh, really? Are you been busy? <laughs> I'm too busy? Too busy. I, I guess I'm not a like... Maybe I'm depressed because I'm not. <laughs> Could be. I think I'm a little depressed because I'm not really a like. I, I guess I've been like New Year, New Me thing, but I yeah. I don't have it right now in my system. Not feeling it. No. More of a well, but have you been relaxing? Is it part of that? Oh, that could be it. Yeah, I've definitely had. We had three weeks off, which was great. You and so I. Nice. Um, we pre-recorded everything, so we actually got to take that break. And there was a lot of nothing going on, which was really Hell nice yeah. for me. And yeah, so maybe I'm still in the downward motion and it's not depression. It's just laziness. I mean, could be. It's like, as long as it's, I mean, the, look, there's always crying, especially <laughs> with some of these holiday commercials. I've just oh. been like, Nora's favorite thing is look over and then poke me. And I'll be like, so what if I'm oh. crying about this? One thing, because it's just like, well, you get it out now. Wow. You can. At commercials. Oh, yeah. Kind of anything that wants you to feel that way, I'll absolutely go there times two. Have you, since you're home with your, what, 14-year-old niece? Soon to be 15. Oh, my God. And your sister, have you guys been, were you watching the Hallmark Christmas movies that were on and amazing? We didn't do that. Ah. Oh. Is that what you were doing? Vince and I were just like randomly turning them on, like, you know, watching HGTV and then flipping around and stuff. And they are so good and bad. Like, they're yep. exactly what you'd think. You know, there's Chad yes. Michael Murray and he's the carpenter and oh. the, and he needs to become this thing. And they are all on Christmas and they need to save Christmas at Christmas Town or whatever. It's like, yeah. it's really. <laughs> and there's the beautiful girl and there's her friend and then there's the one. She's like a book editor, but she's home for the holidays. Yes. But she's sad because it's just her and her mom this yeah, year. Right. And that yeah. was her high school boyfriend. And like she it's basically that movie with Reese Witherspoon. 
What's Sweet that Home one? Alabama? Sweet Home Alabama. Like so much Christmas in your fucking, it's like sticking your face in a Christmas tree. Yeah. Intense and great eyeliner. Like that's all it is. Yeah. And it's sometimes it's like there's often a goofy best friend yes. or an old best friend or some kind of very minor low key conflict of like yeah. fitting back into the hometown or, or right. being in a new town. Cause I'm a busy gal with fucking pantyhose and shoulder pads. Pantyhose. From the city. And now yeah. I'm going back to my slow it down time. Can I slow it down with these super tight pantyhose on? I don't know. And then there's Chad Michael Murray to help her unroll those pantyhose. Oh, that's right. Right down. The sexiest move in sex. (laughs) Just... You know when a man takes you by the waist and then takes those control top pantyhose and begins rolling them down your hip? And they make that noise. (laughs) That's why there's that scene in every porn. That's right. Speaking of porn... You know, one thing I, another thing I watched that was mm. so delightful and enjoyable was the a bunch <laughs> of porn. <laughs> yes, always yeah. the shoulder pad porn. It's totally yes. my thing. Eighties <laughs> movies, aka shoulder pad porn. Uh, MacGruber has a TV uh, show. Did you watch it? No. There's like a. I, I didn't think, know that. I think it's on Peacock. There's like. You know, a six episode MacGruber, which I, I had just found the movie recently with Vince and was like, oh, shit, I love this. Yes. And there's a TV show and it's so good and like light and like exactly stupid and dumb and what you need. Yeah. And can't help me out because now I can't get Chad Michael Murray's name out of my <laughs> He's head. He's in it. No, it's Ryan <laughs> Philippi. Is that what you're saying? No, the, he's MacGruber. In yeah, he's in it. Yes. He's in it for sure. And I just thought you were talking about the other cheeky, like Josh is a blonde guy. Yes, the other classically hot guy. But then there's the classically hot guy that actually is subverting that look because he's so funny. Uh huh. Will Forte. Yes, Will Forte. Oh. Who is, yes. the, and this is, now I'm going to seem like a hypocrite, but I've met him before. And if anyone's a fan of Will Forte, yeah. you need to know that he is the sweetest, oh. nicest, coolest, most normal person in real oh, life. Thank you, Jesus. Like you from day one. Be. Has to be. Right. And because I, it, here's my thing. Okay. I never expected him to be like that because he's really, really good looking in my Do, opinion. Okay. That's, I your, think. that's your type, like the blonde kind of, what is it? He has a little bit, what is it? Well, he, I don't know. He looks like probably someone I went to grammar school with. Therefore, <laughs> I think he's cute. <laughs> he's totally cute. He's totally cute. I just, he always looked to me like the kind of guy who wouldn't be nice because why would he have to be? Because he's really good looking. Well, he's funny. So then of course he's nice because. Yes. Oh, well, that's not been my experience. <laughs> Oh, right. Uh, I forgot. In the least. But he was the exception to the rule it, to the point where he always says hi. And it's that kind of thing where I'm just like, I knew you in like 1998. Yeah. You don't need to do that anymore. Yeah, but he does. <laughs> but this whole story, I wish the story seemed credible. But since I started out not being able to say his name right off the top of my head, it you seems just, like I'm fake. You were fluttered and you were thinking about Ryan Philippi and just got complicated. And it's, you know, things are complicated. That's yeah. for sure. Well, Lawrence Fishburne is in it too. And he, it's just, oh, he, I mean, he's like the actor, you know, yes, of he actors is. and he's in McGruber and it's like so <laughs> That's funny. awesome. Yeah. He, I wonder if he's a fan. Is our friend Kristen Wiig in it? I've never met her. I'm just saying that. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's the fucking lady star. 
Oh, I'm course. so glad. I mean, yeah, she was in the movie, but exactly like there's nobody not in it that you're like, Ugh. they have to. Yeah, yeah. It's like they all came back. It's so heartwarming. That's the best. Uh, okay. I have to watch that. I didn't to. realize they had made a TV show of that. You heard it here for you heard it here first, for sure. I definitely did. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else did, <laughs> but we're going to change that to I heard it here first. Yes. What have we been watching? Well, I think I've said this already, but the thing that Nora and I do is we watch Modern Family together. Right. She's seen every single one of them, literally knows them by heart. But that's kind of our go-to when we... Yeah. We kind of like surf around. Yeah. All right. Well, oh, I'm watching Game of Thrones still. I have watched so much Game of Thrones, Karen. Oh, yeah, that's right. You 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 texted me when they killed the King of the North. <laughs> I was going to be like, should we say spoiler? But it's it's been so long that that's not a spo- If you haven't watched it. No, no. Everyone dies. Many, many die. Yeah. Guess what? Spoiler. It, in Game of Thrones and in life, we're all going to die. <laughs> yeah, I text you all caps. They killed the King of the North. <laughs> because I wasn't expecting that to be the Red Wedding. I thought because people are getting married later. So I thought those were going to be the Red Wedding things. Not the one that it ended up being. And I was blown away. I'm sure everyone else was too. Yeah. You know. It was a real shocker when it actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. And when was it? 2011 or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I was a wee babe of 31. <laughs> I didn't have time. <laughs> no, no, you were doing other stuff. Yeah. No, it, it's so good. I mean, yeah, they I'm that's the thing. It. They set you up to think you know what's going to happen. And then they boom. But I think they yeah. were one of the first shows like that, that were like, oh, we'll kill anybody. You can't, tr- you cannot trust that <laughs> anyone will be here next week. Don't Do get not get attached. All right. But I am attached to Aria. So I know she lasts, but I know it. Nothing lasts in Game of Thrones. Very mature outlook, but you're <laughs> going to be happy about things. Okay. All right. Good to know. You're Good just to going know. to be. Okay. In general. I'll take yeah. it. I'll take That's it. That's my prediction for you. And uh, Therius. What's his name? Who? Uh, what's... I oh, forget it. What's Peter Dinklage? Yes. What's... Yes. Peter Dinklage. <laughs> Was it? For yes. Real? Yes. What's his name? Theron. Lang. Theron. Theron? Theron. No, that's not right either. Tyrion? Tyrion. Tyrion. <laughs> I'm attached to him as well. Well, you should be. Okay. But I'm not yes. going to get my heart broken like right now. Not this second. Okay. Of course later. Yeah. Sure. 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 Later, it's yes. it, so later. far in the past that there's no way they're not dead now. You know what I mean? So if I was like, are they still alive? It would be stupid. Right. I mean, no, I think Tyrion lives on to this day. <laughs> Gotta Just hope. kind of out in a field somewhere with a sword. <laughs> no, no, it's good. You're going to... It's very satisfying. Okay. And there's a part that I'm going to... I'm going to want you to circle back to me. Okay. I can text you all caps. Yes, you can. Okay. Night or day, truly. I'm scared. <laughs> lots, a lot of things happened, but you know, I liked it. There were lots of different opinions when that thing ended. Here's the thing these days. Everybody thinks that they could write television. Right. Everybody thinks that <laughs> right. because they watch television. Right. And because they have watched television and because maybe they took sure. a creative writing class. Yeah. But actually plotting out and writing 
television is fucking hard. And the way they were doing it is like there were so many characters and so much going on. And they started with the books and then went off like everything about that is the most dangerous way to make television, which is there's the fans that like the books. Right. So then you're you're not doing the book (laughs) thing anymore. Like there's all these ways to let people people down. And well, I have I was never pissed off. No expectations. I'm here for the ride. Great. Muting the sword fights because they're gross and boring. And otherwise... There's a lot of clanging. A lot, lot of clanging. Of clanging. But this is the attitude we're looking for in 2022. Just kind of like an, <laughs> the openness and the releasing, the the taking in and and letting back out okay. of things. All right. Right? Deep breaths. Breathe it Deep out breaths. and in. You know the drill. It usually is out and in. Yeah. <laughs> it gotta be. Or in and out, depending on like where you're standing. That's right. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like one thing that I'm not about TV. Oh, <laughs> no, I was just to say like something I've watched on this break or um, something I've been doing. But it's been a lot of kind of been doing a lot of like movies and then reruns and thing like rewatching and stuff. Okay. Because, yeah, there's I've started things and then I've been like. This isn't doing it for me. Yeah. But I know that my demands are very specific. Yeah. Very irritating. <laughs> so, and you're watching with other people now. So it's like, it has yes. to be, everyone has to be into it, especially a 14 year old girl who's not probably into very, like, very much stuff that you're into. Yes. So that makes it harder. It's kind of like when Nora's still, when she's still up in, in the front room with us. Yeah. Then, then we're, everything's kind of catered toward what she likes because sure. we just are trying to keep her in the room Aww. as long as possible. Aww. But then she's got to peel off so she can go Snapchat it up. With, <laughs> with, it's so hilarious. It's like, and my we we have to talk about. Oh, uh, we can't take it personally because she's a, right. an adult. Of you know, course. she's a, she's a teen. Yeah. But it's like, why are you in there? Why don't you want to be out here with us? It'd probably feel better if she went in there to read a book rather than talk to other people. Right. Yeah. She's definitely picking her friends over us, which like, (laughs) that's how it is. Who gives a shit about your mom and your aunt? Right. But she needs to know that these are the days to hold on to. And we won't, although we'll want to. Right. These are the days to remember. And because they will not last forever. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) What if there's a thank you and you're welcome in that Billy Joel song? (laughs) That song makes me cry. Do you know that? Really? Yeah. Well, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) It's beautiful. The man knows how to write a song and has since like 1972. Billy Joel is the man. He knows his shit. There was a TV show I was watching and one of his songs from the 70s was very astutely put on the soundtrack. It was one of those TV shows that had a very good sound, uh, like music producer. Yeah. So they had a huge budget is what you're saying. Yeah. And they could, they could <laughs> actually play the real Billy Joel song. And I was right. just like, nice one. Mm. Nice pick. And also his voice, like the clarity of his singing voice is mm. real effective. It gets you. It does. All right. Um, what else? Oh. Yeah. So. <sighs> On my way up, because I drove up for this break. Oh, I am. Yes. Do it. Yes. Yeah. So I had to, I had to prep a bunch of podcasts for me drive. Yeah. Okay. 
So you know that crazy story out of South Carolina about the lawyer who... The Murdoch family? The Mur- yes. Murdoch's? Yes. Murdoch. Murdoch. It's pronounced Murdoch, I right. learned. So there is a reporter, a young woman named Mandy Matney. Mm-hmm. And she has been covering this story since the first part of the story broke. And I think at this point, there's like 20 parts of the story. Is the first part where he kills the girl in the boating accident or when the t- the two... It's so wild. It's the craziest story. So first of all, that's misinformation because he didn't kill... We He didn't kill anybody. Not, not His, the dad, but the son, right? The son? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So there's a boating accident. A teenage girl dies in this yeah. boating accident. And that's basically what begins this journey and Mandy Matney is a reporter Mm. um, tries to look into it but the son who was driving the boat is the son of the Murdoch family who they have been what is essentially the equivalent of the DA in this county in South Carolina for like a hundred years or more. Yeah it's like a big rich family generations of wealth. Very powerful in the legal community. Huge. She uncovers, basically starts pulling a thread that is one of the most unbelievable stories you've ever heard. And we've all heard parts of it. Now, yes. my dad, home Jim, sent uh-huh. me this Guardian article. Jim. And he was like, you have to read this. This is crazy. Did you know about it? And I was like, well, I heard things here or there. This article is basically this comprehensive thing because the person who wrote the article has been listening to Mandy Matney's podcast. Mm. So the podcast is called The Murdoch Murders. Mm-hmm. And there's like 25 episodes of oh, it. Wow. They're half hour each. So you can binge it like crazy. Yeah. And it's she's been covering the story since the beginning. Wow. She's the reporter. So it's really cool because aside from the fact that you're hearing this mind-blowing story and this kind of old boy network being blown apart yes it's this young woman reporter who's basically doing it with her (gasps) fitz news amazing news website that she works for and like on the weekly things are changing and things are coming out like currently things are happening yes it's a breaking story yeah that she has been w- reporting on from the beginning. Right. It's with really like old buried amazing. shit and like cr- and twists. Oh, I can't. Okay. I'm going to totally listen to that. Yeah. It's like a kind of a jaw dropper. <gasps> um, and also in the first couple episodes, she starts, to, she talks about after her first episode, she, <laughs> she gets on there and is like, People keep talking about my vocal fry. There's nothing I can do about it. It's really mean that you're saying that. And Ugh. I was laughing so hard. I was just like, oh, honey, move on. I you're, love you. That's the, yeah. the be- just the beginning of <laughs> quote unquote feedback that you're going to get. Just feedback. keep going. Just keep going. It's just not keep going. feedback. Good for her. Good for so you. So if you haven't heard the Murdoch murders, you absolutely have to listen to it. Okay. Yeah. Um, can I do one real quick Please. that I listened to throughout, like whenever I was cleaning something throughout the, um, pan- what, not the pandemic, but our, tr- our vacation. <laughs> Same difference. Same fucking thing. <laughs> so have you heard of the podcast Heavyweight? I don't, I don't know. It's hosted by this dude, Jonathan Goldstein, who is so lovely and funny and curious and each episode, he basically interviews a person who had this moment in their life that was pivotal. 
and are trying to sort through it by like kind of understanding it. And usually there's another person involved that then Jonathan Goldstein goes and gets a hold of so they can like exchange. Like there's an episode with Moby. It's people's life stories, almost a little bit like This American Life, Mm -hmm. but but told through the voice of whoever was there, not the person who experienced it. Oh. Who want to figure it out. It's really fucking good. And like, there's some guy had gotten hit by a car on his bicycle and had it, you know, ruined his life. He couldn't walk for years and he was, and then he wanted to meet the guy who hit him and had been like 10 years and they sit them down in a room together and they're crying and apologizing and thinking it's like the most beautiful cry 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 oh my god i know it's stuff like that if but georgia if i'm crying while i'm watching like an at&t commercial do you <laughs> think that i am gonna be okay <laughs> no but it's like a good cry it's like a, there's like a humanity behind these stories that like yes that, that like this is how life really is it's really beautiful oh good okay so just amazing storytelling. Yes. Really great storytelling, really. And then there's some that are funny. They're always like touching a little bit and they're always like life lesson-y. So yeah, check out Heavyweight. I really love it. Cool. Yeah. I love that. Hey, speaking of podcasts, should we do Exactly Right Corner and talk Good about idea. all the podcasts on our network or at least some of them? Let's do it. Real quick, Murder Squad continues their winter distraction series with guest Dr. Ann Burgess. She is who the character of Wendy Carr in the show Mindhunter is based on, which is just she is a badass. So awesome. And also over on I Said No Gifts with Bridger Weiniger, if you're watching SNL and you're blown away by the newest cast member who does the impression of Trump, his name is James Austin Johnson. He's a comic I don't know if he's originally from L.A., but I know him from here. Mm-hmm. So talented and hilarious. And he is on I Said No Gifts this week. Love it. Yeah. And we have a the new merch in the merch store is this satin pajamas that have you and I and our pets on them. I have been looking at those for so long because they are hanging on a hook with all my vintage 90s like next to my bed. So every time I fall asleep <laughs> at night, I see our faces and like our animals and all the adorable stuff by the artist. The art on the pajamas is by Rachel Flannery, who's a friend of the podcast and this really talented artist. I love all her work. Rack Flan on Instagram. So check the those out on myfavoritemurder.com in the store. Do you need silk pajamas? Of course. The answer just might be yes. <laughs> Ask yourself. And then also last week we put out the monthly episode of MFM Animated by Nick Terry. And this episode is so freaking good. It's sarcasm through the mail and it's based on a story from the My Favorite Murder Minisode number 250. It is It's Another Beauty by Nick Terry. He's just so talented. How does he do it? He has a life and a job. I don't know. A marriage to tend to. And yet he still makes us these beautiful, beautiful animated. Go to YouTube, MFM Animated, the exactly right YouTube page. That's right. Do it. Good times. Good times. Do it. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound... 
means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com slash murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. Hey, Karen, you know that feeling when you're stressed out and your heart starts to pound and your mind is racing? I do. I know it well. Well, while there's no cure for stress, therapy can help shape your response to it. And since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, there's no better time to try Talkspace. When you sign up for Talkspace, you'll receive a personalized match with a therapist or psychologist, typically within 48 hours. Forbes rates Talkspace as the number one online therapy platform, plus their licensed professionals are in network with almost all major insurance companies. Once you meet your therapy goals, or if you want to cancel for any reason, Talkspace will provide you with a prorated refund for unused time. I feel like these days people understand the importance of therapy, but the difficult part is just taking that first step. It took me months to make my first therapy appointment. I was so scared. I had a lot of ideas in my head about it. And that's why I think Talkspace is such a good idea, because making it so approachable will just get you there sooner. Then you can actually get in there, figure out what you need, talk to an actual professional, and be on your way to solving some stuff that you might want to solve. To celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering our listeners $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80. Go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and use promo code SPACE80. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and enter promo code SPACE80 and get $80 off your first month and show your support for our show. That's Talkspace.com slash MFM. Enter promo code SPACE80. Goodbye. So today, I'm first, right? Yeah. Yeah. Today, I'm going to tell you a story about a French woman named Blanche Monier. So this is also known as the story of the Sequestier de Poitiers. So what's, what's that mean? It's a sequestered woman in Poitiers, France. Okay. All, all right. right. Sequestered. We can all relate. Sequestered. <laughs> so I first heard about this in an All That's Interesting article written by Gina DeMiro. I also got info from info. I got info, <laughs> information. Information. That's right. From a History Daily article written by Lily Rowan, a Ranker article by Inigo Gonzalez, two Chicago Tribune staff articles. And then like, oh, these are all old timey mag- magazines. These are all old timey newspaper articles, one from like a, the New York Times, uh, Brooklyn Life article also written by E.M. Milsener. So here's where we start. On May 23rd, 1901. Mm, the attorney. The yeah. The beginning of the 19s. 
The attorney general of Paris receives an unsigned letter that reads, Monsieur Attorney General. Monsieur. Monsieur <laughs> Attorney General. I have the honor to inform you of an exceptionally serious occurrence. I speak of a spinster who was locked up in Madame Monet's house. Monnier's? M-O-N-N-I-E-R-S. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I can't pretend that I'd be able to pronounce. There's only a couple words I know because I took French one. That's right. <laughs> when I was a freshman. So I mean, you're the expert here, though. I mean, I know Monsieur. Yeah, <laughs> that's about it. Monsieur. Madame Monnier's house, uh, half starved and living on a putrid litter for the past 25 years in a word in her own filth. What? Yeah, so he gets that letter. Um, but of course, he knows that the Moniers are a well-known and respected family in the community of Potier, France, which is a couple hours outside of Paris. So the attorney general tells a few police officers to go over to the house and check things out, but be really careful, of course, because if the contents of the letter turn out to be fake, it could look really bad on the officers, like, you know, blaming a, a well-to-do family for something Balls. You know those rich people don't like to be blamed for having a lady God hidden forbid. away somewhere. That's right. God forbid. God forbid. But on the other hand, the spinster that the they named in the letter had basically disappeared off the face of the planet. So they knew it was a real woman. Ooh. So maybe the letter was true because no one had seen her in years. So when the officers are finally able to force their way into the home to search, they're appalled at what they find. Uh-uh. Boom. Let's go back real quick. Oh, how exciting was that? Great. So Luis and Emile Monner live in Poitiers, France, which is about four hours away from Paris. According to the Chicago Tribune, the Monnier family has, quote, lived in Poitou. My God. Lived in Poitiers. Lived in that town. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I love you <laughs> for over half a century and quote, they belong to the most respected families of the city and always enjoy the reputation of being among the most refined and genteel. So they're like bourgeois and shit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Did I get that right? Bourgeois. Bourgeois. A bourgeois. Louise is a key figure in the mother is a key figure in Parisian high society. She's known for her charitable works. She even received a community award for her generosity to the city. Um, the husband, Emile, had been the head of a local arts facility. They're both very well known in town and respected. In the mid 1800s, their daughter, Blanche, is born and they also have a son named Marcel. So by the time Blanche is in her 20s, people just can't help but notice how beautiful she is. But they also say that she's gentle and she's good natured, a really lovely woman. Um, the New York Times describes her as being a, quote, beautiful, tall brunette with a wealth of hair. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And big, brilliant eyes. She is, quote, belle of the neighborhood of Poitiers and is sought by more than one, end quote. Mm, so she's a two. <laughs> it could be three. Could it be? It could be any number above one. <laughs> above one. In 1876, at 25 years old, after her father and the head of the household dies, Blanche is expected to pick a suitor to marry so she can be taken care of since her father's dead. Unfortunately, for her mother, she's fallen in love with an attorney and he's poor. 
So I know. Tough. Tough. So when Blanche tells her mom about this, Luis is not pleased at all. Of course, she doesn't approve of this guy. He is not only much older than her, but he's not from the same social class. He's, quote, penniless. Um, but they've fallen in love. This is just like Downton Abbey. But oh, French. my God, you're right. <laughs> or similar. I think he had money, though. Anyway, sorry. Go right. Ahead. But you're right. And Louise is worried about what people around town will say if she marries this penniless lawyer. It's going to be completely disgraceful for Blanche to marry someone of this class. In Poitiers, it's super intense. The people talk. Sure. Gossip. Et cetera. You know. Et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> you know how they talk are. Talk and gossip. Louise demands that her daughter find a better suitor, a.k.a. a richer one. And Blanche tells her mom, she it's not going to happen. I'm in love. And she threatens to elope with this man. Yeah. But Louise doesn't give in. Instead, she locks Blanche in a nine by 12 foot room in the attic. She tells Blanche that she will be released just as soon as she agrees to marry someone else. But Blanche refuses to give in to her mother's demands. And so she stays in the locked room. In the beginning, Blanche spends a lot of her time screaming for help. And when the neighbors hear, they ask Luis what's going on. And she says that her daughter has gone insane. Oh, yeah. After And they believe it. I think it's a time when that just, you know, was an OK excuse for women to have disappeared because they went insane you know they were just insane and that's yeah it's very like um gothic novel right it's very and it's also like women yeah they're insane so crazy it's it's, it's very apt to happen yeah you know after a few years the screaming stops and the attic window is boarded up louise tells her neighbors that blanche has gone off to live in an insane asylum Mm. Mm mm-hmm According to the Chicago Tribune, quote, the neighbors sympathize with Louise and tactfully respect the sad mystery which surrounds the fate of Blanche. They gradually cease to speak of Blanche and finally almost forget the very existence of the unfortunate girl. Mm -hmm. But Blanche has not gone off to an insane asylum. Instead, she's kept in the attic where she does not see the light of day. The only interaction she has is with her mom, her brother and the servants. She's rarely fed, and when she is fed, it's table scraps, and she's not allowed to wear clothes or bathe. Whoa. Guess how long she's in there for? Ugh. 25 years. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. After, like, year 17, wouldn't you be like, okay, I'll date. I'll yeah. date Yeah. But I feel like at that point, it's like they had to keep their little secret. Like, even after a year or two, I think she's wasting away. They can't just bring her back into society. Right. Yes, exactly. You know? They've kind of, this is a, they're in an impasse, mother right. and daughter. Right. And also, I bet you the mother was kind of intense yeah. to have done it in the first place yes. and then held to it in that way. Yes, absolutely. Like there's not a lot. There's some imbalance of chemicals going on in this household. Throughout the household. Yes. Right. So 25 years go by and no one has even thought of Blanche in quite some time. Then on the 23rd of May, 1901, as we talked about in the beginning of this story, the attorney general of Paris receives the unsigned letter telling him of the, quote, spinster who was locked up in Madame Monnier's house, half starved and living on a putrid litter for the past 25 years in her own filth. So Mm -hmm. the attorney general 
then sends the police officers. They're finally able to get into the house. Luis's son, Marcel, lives across the street with his wife and daughter. He says, you can't come in to look at it. Um, but finally, they're able to search the house without the permission. I think whatever a search warrant is back in those days, they got mm. one. Once inside, they're immediately hit with the smell of something awful. Following the stench, the officers arrive at a padlocked door leading to the attic. The officers break the lock and inside they find complete darkness. <sighs> they can't see anything, but they can smell something and it's rancid. It's so bad that the officers immediately are like, we need to open a window, but the window's boarded up and hidden behind heavy curtains. Oh, no. An officer later detailed what happened next. Quote, we immediately gave the order to open the window. This was done with great difficulty for the old dark colored curtains fell down in a heavy shower of dust to open the shutters. It was necessary to remove them from their hinges. As soon as the light entered the room, we noticed in the back, lying on a bed, her head and body covered by a repulsively filthy blanket, a woman identified as Mademoiselle Blanche Monnier. Okay. Can I tell you what I'm thinking of right now? Yes. Did you ever see the movie Pet Cemetery? Uh, it's exactly that. And <sighs> there's a photo of this woman and it, no! looks, it looks like that scene. <gasps> yeah. And they must have He's torn it from like Stephen King must have known about the story because it's like the same thing okay those cops all would have had to go to an insane asylum totally that. totally I'm just standing in the room like what's going on in yeah. here all and then the curtain comes down <sighs> oh and my like God. by the description of the curtain it meant that they could tell it hadn't been the window hadn't been open in you know de literal decades oh <sighs> He goes on to say that the unfortunate woman was lying completely naked on a rotten straw mattress. All around her was formed a sort of crust made from excrement, fragments of meat, vegetables, fish, and rotten bread. No. We, al we also saw oyster shells and bugs running across Mademoiselle <gasps> Monnier's bed. <sighs> End quote. So she just, they, the mother held her in abject filth. In, in, Pitch blackness. Pitch black, no clothes allowed. Your own daughter that you raised from to 25 years old. Like there Ooh. must have been something going on before that, right? You don't just like snap, do you? Yeah, exactly. There's, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Ooh, I don't like this at all. No, I knew you wouldn't. <laughs> on the floor are swarms of rodents eating pieces of rotting food scattered around. And the room is covered with words and drawings scratched into the wall. Oh, my God. But because the smell is so bad, the officers, they can't do any more investigating. Blanche is rushed to the hospital because they have to just leave the room immediately because yeah. of immediate PTSD. Sorry. Can I just say, yeah. and I know this is a small detail, but to me, what puts it over the top is oysters. Like, this <laughs> is a disgusting situation. Yeah. Yeah. You're throwing seafood onto the top of that? Yeah. Nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. And weren't Good. oysters like a poor person's food back then? So she was literally getting like the scraps. Yeah. Like what people didn't want to yeah, eat. Yeah. Yeah. So Blanche is rushed to the hospital and Louise and her son, Marcel, are carted away to jail. Once word gets out that the wealthy and respected Louise has been keeping her daughter locked up in a room for 25 fucking years, <sighs> the public is outraged. A crowd gathers outside the Monnier house and Marcel's wife and daughter have to go into hiding. 
at the hospital, Blanche is bathed and examined. Doctors are worried that she's not going to make it. She's skeletal and so malnourished that she only weighs 44 pounds. Oh, my God. Yeah. According to Brooklyn Life, Blanche's nails are three inches long and her, quote, hair is matted into the semblance of a bar of iron. Oh, and according to Ranker, she is, quote, unable to speak properly and is completely delirious. But some say she was eventually lucid once they kind of took care of her. And someone said she remarked, quote, how lovely it is to breathe fresh air again. God. Meanwhile, Luis and Marcel are interrogated by police. At first, they say they had to lock Blanche away because she is, quote, foul, angry, overly excited and full of rage. But Me too. <laughs> lock her away. <laughs> but officers don't believe the Moniers. They hadn't experienced any of those reactions when they found Blanche and she started coming around. They said that at the hospital, Blanche had been completely calm and happy when she was finally given a bath. And so Marcel and Luis's story just doesn't add up. Eventually, the Moniers start to open up. Marcel, the son, blames everything on his mother, saying that Luis had complete control over the family and their finances. He tells officers that he had tried to save Blanche, but he couldn't because of Luis. So instead, he just tried to make her as comfortable as possible. He didn't try very hard. He really didn't do a great job of that. He didn't. He really I'm sure he was terrified of his mother, too, though, you know? I mean, that's just it. This could, it could have been him. The mother could have been terrified of him. He could have like, yeah. there's the possibilities, right? Right. Like you just don't know. At this point, you don't know what the details, what's going on in that house. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So Luis actually confesses the truth, but she never faces any legal consequences because 15 days after her arrest, 73 year old Luis has a heart attack and dies in her jail cell. Oh, Wow. So you kind of wonder like, oh, maybe then Blanche would have been found and freed anyways. But then again, maybe Marcel would have murdered her and got rid of her body. So, you know, like once the mom died, if to not let the story get out, anything could have happened. I'm who knows? I mean, I doubt he would have freed her and been like, see, everyone, she's fine. Be like and let the story get out. But if you're if we're going to take him at his word yes. that it was all the mom, then he would have. It, it is. It's just as possible. Right. I mean, it's like how. Yeah. But it, but she might not have died either. Like she could have died from the shock 15 days later. If she had just been living her normal life, she might not have had a heart attack. So it would have gone yeah. on, you know. Yeah, that could have been from shock. Also, one would like to think. Like even, you know, you told the story of your sister hitting you with a Barbie or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But if your mother locked her into a room. Yeah. For years, you would do something about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You would, you would, you would actually do something about it. Yeah. Like day two, day two. Yeah. Not like year 25. No, exactly. (laughs) (sighs) Give her a day in there. Lee, you deserve it a little bit, a day or two. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Throw some, throw some oyster revenge. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But then I'd be like, you know, I don't have anyone to play with right now. So this kind of sucks. No one looks good in this story on the family side. I'm just saying. Absolutely not. Before she died, she made sure to change her will to put all the family's money toward caring for Blanche. Her last words were reportedly, oh, my poor Blanche. But it just everyone thinks that on her deathbed, she was worried about her public image. So she did all these things to make it seem like she was taking care of her daughter. Yeah. When it's like, well, yeah, you clearly didn't. 
After the servants all say that Luis forced them to keep Blanche imprisoned in the attic. So they had servants there that were like contributing to keeping her there. Marcel is the only one to go on trial and he's found guilty of helping his mother keep Blanche captive and is sentenced to 15 months in prison. Oh, um, okay. But the thing is, he's an attorney, so he appeals the sentence. Sure. Uh, he knows exactly what to say. He says Blanche could have left any at any time and no one forced her to stay there. She's like, hmm. she was chained to a wall and write and like writing on the walls about being held captive. So it's yeah, doubt, yeah, it's, doubt it. it's highly unlikely that you're just going to let yourself starve. Right. To the brink of death right. and sit in filth. Yeah, that's exactly. insane. And at this time in France, though, it wasn't a crime to not help free someone that you didn't imprison. Hmm. So if someone else imprisoned someone, not your problem, essentially. Yeah. yeah, I get it. Yeah. So technically, he hadn't done anything wrong. And the court agrees and Marcel is freed. The public's really angry at it and him and his family have to go into hiding. Eventually, Blanche is able to gain weight and speak in short sentences, but spending half of her life locked up in a room, of course, has done a lot of damage to her psyche, and she's so traumatized that she never makes a full recovery. She lives out her final days in a sanatorium before she dies 12 years later in 1913. Mm. To this day, no one knows who wrote the letter about Blanche's living conditions to the attorney general. One of the servants. I, it's been rumored that it was one of the servants or one of the servants told someone they know and they told someone like the servants hmm. didn't even do it. Or some people also think that the brother Marcel finally gained enough courage to go to the police. But neither theory has ever been confirmed. And that is the story of Blanche Monaire, who was imprisoned in her mother's attic. For 25 years. I need to see that picture, even though I kind of don't want to. You want me to show it to you? Yeah. Uh, oh, no. No, no. no. The poor woman. That is... Yeah. Horrifying. Horrifying. That's truly what horror movies are yes. based on and made out of. Yes. That's a horror movie. Yeah, Totally. Now we need the heavyweights version where it's those policemen telling the story. Oh, of that. my gosh. Can you imagine? You're just kind of like, oh. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant, like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh, my God. Yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient. Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant-quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. 
What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay. Great. That was creepy. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, no. It, <laughs> that's why I'm here. That's yeah, why I show that's, up that's to work. <laughs> that's my, that's why I like this job so much. <laughs> okay. So my story, uh, the reason I'm doing this story this week is because someone named Tyler Jones on Twitter at Tyler underscore Jones 92 mm-hmm. sent all of us uh, a tweet that said, quote, please do this story. It's a wild ride. And we all know you love a Texas monthly article. <gasps> yes. Right. Which yeah. is very true. Yeah. And the main reason we love those articles is because the great journalist Skip Hollinsworth mm. writes for Texas monthly. I believe he's actually like an executive editor or something. Probably. Very high, high up there. And he wrote the article that ah. Tyler Jones 92 sent. So it's love a perfect. A Hollinsworth. Friend of the Just family magic. too. Friend of the, friend of the family. But also like. The thing about Skip Hollinsworth's articles mm-hmm. is that he re- – I'm just retelling his article. Right. And we, we say this every time we do this. The yeah. same thing with the um, the amazing bank robber story it turned out to be that woman, yes. which is one of my favorite stories of all time. Uh, it's Skip Hollinsworth's yeah. article, his his journalism, his research. Yeah. Um, and I'm just basically giving you a Cliff's Notes version of it so that you can go and read it. Right. Um, and what I, I think we've promoted this before, but Texas Monthly has a podcast network now. Yeah. They have their own podcast, which you should absolutely go and explore because the journalism for Texas Monthly is excellent and yeah. amazing. Their stories are incredible. And he, and Skip Hollinsworth has a podcast called Tom Brown's Body. Right. Which I started listening to. That's really good. Really. It's very sad. It's about a, a teenage boy in a small town in Texas that went missing in the investigation around right. his, uh, what do you eventually find out is murder. But also, I didn't know, I don't know that I knew this, but Skip Hollinsworth wrote uh, a New York Times bestselling and award-winning book called The Midnight Assassin, The Hunt for America's First Serial Killer. And that's about um, the Austin Servant Girl. Yes. Slayer. I covered a long Servant time ago. Servant Annihilator, right? The Servant Annihilator, yep. And that story is from 1885. Yeah. Crazy. And that book, you can also get it on audiobook. I just down- downloaded it yeah. for my drive home. Yes. So anyway... We love Skip Hollinsworth. His work is incredible. And, yeah. you know, 
We were so grateful for all of the journalists and especially the crime journalists, but the journalists in general, yeah. they go out and they find those amazing stories um, that we then take and just kind of retell for you. Yeah. Bastardize, I think they call yes. it. Well, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like, hey, did you know about this? Right. Did you hear this? Listen Skip to this Holland's story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen to, it's like, yeah, it's like being at a party, obviously, and being like, did you hear this? Let me tell you the story I read about yeah. in, in my party story voice and my, it's a party story that then we're just pointing you toward great sources yeah. of, of amazing journalism yeah this podcast is a party story essentially yeah so skip hollinsworth's article from the texas monthly is the the research for the story i'm about to tell okay. you along with there's um there was an article from the new york times by douglas martin um there was a houston chronicle article that did not have a byline and then as always wikipedia mm. which these days every time i go on there they need donations so mm -hmm. if you have five dollars and you're the kind of person that uses wikipedia all the time which we are mm -hmm. please donate to them keep them around we need them yes very much yes okay so this is this is the story of houston socialite candy mossler and the murder of jacques mossler okay so we're gonna go to june of 1964 so it's the swing in 60s yes houston texas socialite candace candy mossler is and i'm guessing at that name pronunciation yeah let's hope i'm right Mosley. I think it's Mosley. <laughs> it's Mosley. She's visiting her husband, millionaire businessman Jacques Mosler, at their condo in Key Biscayne, Florida, which is near Miami. Mm -hmm. um, so, therefore, adopted children are also on the trip with Candy, and um, they're down there because her husband Jacques heads several banks. He has loan companies. He also owns insurance companies, and he's in Florida for work. Because three of his banks are headquartered there in Miami. Okay. So the kids spend their days playing at the beach and enjoying the sunshine. Unfortunately, Candy's suffering from debilitating headaches. So she visits the local hospital on four separate occasions oh. for treatment. The last of these four hospital visits takes place on the night of June 29th, 1964, and into the early morning hours of June 30th. So... Candy brings all four kids with her and she also runs errands along the way. So first she stops at a hotel to mail some letters. Mm -hmm. Then she treats the kids to burgers at a diner. And finally, then she goes to the hospital where she gets an injection for her headache pain. Candy and the kids get back to the condo around 430 in the morning. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Like... When have Here. you ever? When have you ever in your life? Yeah. After a rave when I was 16. I remember one time I snuck back up after everyone went to bed so I could watch Letterman when I was like 12. Uh -huh. And my dad woke up. So it was 1230 at yeah. night. And when my dad woke up and found me, he acted like I was shooting up drugs in the front row. He's like, what are you doing? Oh he like went God. insane. And so that's... Usually, if you're a kid yeah, yeah. and you're up at 4.30 in the morning, something is terribly yeah. wrong. That's just my history. Absolutely. Okay, so they get back to the condo and they find Jacques dead on the living room floor. Huh. His body's wrapped in an orange blanket. His head shows signs of blunt force trauma. And when they unwrap him from the blanket, they find he's been stabbed in the abdomen 39 times. Holy shit. 
So when the police arrive and they examine the body, they see this, they know it's overkill. And so they immediately question the immediate family, which is Candy. Right. So let's talk about Candy Mossler. She is born Candace Weatherby on February 18th, 1920 in Buchanan, Georgia, which is 55 miles west of Atlanta. She's the sixth of 12 kids in a poor farming family. Oof. So she grows up, no phone, no radio. She works on the farm with like all her brothers and sisters, picking cotton, planting crops, tending to chickens, like works on the farm. I feel like you have that many kids to have workers on the farm. Yeah. Right. Or just because you don't have birth control. Sure. There's no choice. Yeah. So from the beginning, Candy dreams of more. She is said to have always been putting on a show, dressing up, pretending she's a princess, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of having to live in a fantasy world. So in 1932, when she's 12 years old, her mother dies giving birth to her her 13th child, who also dies. So just tragic. Yeah. Her dad falls into a deep depression, starts drinking. He's unable to handle 12 kids on his own, obviously. So he moves out of Buchanan. He leaves the younger children with different family members, and the older kids are left to fend for themselves. Mm. 12-year-old Candace ends up living with her grandfather, but she essentially has to raise herself. Yeah. So it's a very tough childhood. Yeah. As a teenager, her grandfather encourages her to find herself a husband to take care of her. Sure. How encouraging. Uh, so that's when she meets family friend named Norman Johnson. So Norman's a civil engineer. He's 10 years older than her. They get married in 1939 when Candace is 19 and they move to Anniston, Alabama, and they have a son named Norman Jr. But Candy very soon grows bored with the stay-at-home mom life. She starts volunteering at the USO nearby at Fort Benning. She hosts parties for soldiers, and she meets and befriends lots of soldiers there, most notably Winthrop Rockefeller. Oh, so Yeah. Winthrop is the son of billionaire John D. Rockefeller. Damn! We've all heard about him and his center in New York City. Yeah. His net worth in 1937 was 1.4 billion dollars. <gasps> I don't Today is 19 billion 301 million dollars. Oh so, my god. Made of money. So Winthrop and Candy grow very close. Uh-huh. So much so that when Candy has her second baby, Rita in 1943, lots of people wonder if the baby is Norman's or Winthrop's. Mm. Um, the actual paternity is never tested, never proven. Hmm. No, it's no one knows. In the mid forties, Norman gets a job at a shipyard. Uh, the family moves to New Orleans, but soon after Norman and Candy get a divorce. So Norman moves to Boulder, Colorado. Candy stays in New Orleans with her two kids and fends for herself which she's obviously used to doing. Yeah. She finds work as a model for local department stores. Um, she also designs her own line of lingerie. So mm. she's clearly a very smart woman and a, a very beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. She's like immediately a working model mm-hmm. as a mother of two. And getting this work inspires Candace to travel to New York City and attend the Barbizon School of Modeling, which apparently was open in the 40s. Wow. All right. I had no idea. Yeah. I thought that was just an 80s thing, but it's been around for a long time. Barbizon. 
so when she finishes up there, she moves back to New Orleans and she decides to open her own modeling school for mm-hmm. young girls. Mm-hmm. In addition to teaching girls how to do their hair, their makeup and maintain a thin figure. Mm-hmm. Can't, right? Mm-hmm. All, dreams do come true, everybody. <laughs> she also promises to give her students, quote, self-confidence, grace, poise and elegance of speech that will make you a person of real distinction, mm-hmm. unquote. And actually, there's newspaper ads for this modeling school that feature Candy's face in them. Oh, my God. And uh, I guess the thing at the school is they would throw a parade down Canal Street and all the students would like show off their different talents. Do like a modeling thing at the end of it. Just like stick a book on your head, take a walk down (laughs) Canal Street and let the people of New Orleans know (laughs) how thin you are. So... Like rumors are swirling around town sure. that the modeling school isn't Candy's only means of income. Mm-mm. People are saying she makes money as a sex worker herself and that she has set up an escort service under the guise of teaching dance lessons. Oh, no. So apparently men go in for the dance lesson. They're partnered up with a woman. And then after they dance, there's a like, I guess, adjoining bedrooms that they split off into. They do a, a quick shuffle into the, the joining. Yeah, like one, and two and three and, <laughs> and slam the door. <laughs> <laughs> so despite these rumors, Candy just she has her head held high. She's doing her business. Yeah. No shame in her game. She volunteers for local arts organizations like the New Orleans Opera, mm-hmm. helping to solicit donations. And she's very good at persuading um, New Orleans wealthy elite to give large sums of money to the opera. Although there's one donor that Candace meets in 1947 who thinks the opera is boring and will only commit to giving $25. But he is very interested in 27-year-old Candace. And that man is Jacques Mosler. Mm. So... We'll talk about him for a second. Originally from Romania, Jacques and his family emigrate to Buffalo, New York when he's a child. And in his late teens, somewhere around 1913, he moves to New Orleans and starts uh, his own used car dealership in his teens. All right. (laughs) Right. You got to. Working hard. But then in 1916, a doctor reports his car being stolen from the hospital parking lot and authorities discover it in a garage (laughs) at Jacques dealership. Oops. And so the 21-year-old is arrested for grand larceny. It's unclear if he's ever convicted for that crime because soon after his arrest, he joins the army and is shipped off to fight World War I. Damn. When he returns from war, he sells the dealership. He opens a loan company. It starts off small, but then it becomes successful. And then that allows him to open more loan companies and he opens insurance firms mm-hmm. and finally banks. So yeah. he is a wheeler dealer. When you own the bank, you're wealthy. Yeah. You're doing pretty good. Yeah. Or did he buy the bank? Was the bank for sale? Oh. Like, how did it work back then? I don't, I don't know. know. He's 22 years old in 1917 and he marries his first wife. He has four kids with his first wife. 30 years later, 1947, Jacques files for divorce and he basically focuses his efforts just on business. And that's what he's all about. He has spent the past 30 years becoming a multimillionaire. So he's very well known in these elite social circles, but he mostly keeps to himself until he meets Candace Uh -uh. when she's soliciting for the opera. 
So a few weeks after obtaining Jacques' $25 donation, <laughs> Candy and Jacques bump happened to bump into each other at oh. the zoo. Oh. So everyone knows that Jacques takes a walk every day uh, for his lunch break at the zoo. Okay. So whether it's just a weird coincidence that this supermodel Candy is also <laughs> at the zoo at lunchtime, uh, it doesn't matter because running into each other, they immediately start dating and they get married two years later in May of 1949 in Fort Lauderdale. So the next year, uh, the newlyweds relocate to Houston. Houston is undergoing this massive uh. um, like upgrade thanks to the oil boom and uh, the Mosslers build a three-story mansion on three acres of land in river oaks which is houston's wealthiest neighborhood okay um at the time i'm could it still be probably <laughs> their seven car garage is filled seven with car garage yep and it has all luxury cars in it oh my god they have a full staff at their home butlers maids gardeners the whole shebang so when they first moved to town, of course, Candy's a stranger, but that doesn't last long. She throws herself into every philanthropic effort that she can find. She volunteers at hospitals. She throws benefit parties um, for the for the Houston Opera. She's going from opera to oh. opera. She knows that's yeah. where the elite hang. Definitely. At the opera. You know. She cuts very generous checks for causes like like theater companies and heart disease research and the Houston boys club because fuck the Houston girls. Yeah. Those boys need money. The boys need it. So soon word gets out around town that Candace in her past life may or may not have been an escort in new Orleans, Mm. but these whispers behind her back are no match for the philanthropic good that she's doing in her current life. Throw money at the problem. Yeah, for real. Also, everyone who meets Candy is immediately charmed by her twinkling blue eyes, her beauty, and her very friendly personality. She's not the first woman with a questionable past who's married rich. So while some people like to gossip about, you know, her possible uh, history, most people just decide to look the other way and say, who gives a shit? I like her. Yeah. So then in January of 1957... Jacques away on business in Chicago when he hears, and this is insane. He hears about four kids who are orphaned after their father shot their mother mm. and stabbed the youngest child in the family to death. Oh my God. Horrifying. So Candy immediately flies to meet him into Chicago and they adopt all four kids and bring them back to Houston. So this new family is met with a flurry of reporters and photographers upon landing when they get back. And Candy's face is plastered all across the news for, quote unquote, saving these children. Mm -hmm. So this is the Mossler family background, which is actually even more horrifying to think about that these kids, these four adopted kids, what how they came to be orphans and then they had to live through the trauma of murder all over again when they get to the condo and find Jacques murdered. Horrifying. God. Okay. So when the police arrive at the Mossler's Key Biscayne condo, the night of the murder, Candy tells them she suspects a robbery has taken place. But then the police note the overkill, the 39 stab wounds and how that probably indicates a crime of passion. Mm -hmm. And that's when Candy has a little bit more to say. She tells the police that Jacques 
being the very successful businessman that he is, he has made himself more than a few enemies over the years. Plus, she suspects that her husband may have been leading a double life, sleeping with men behind her back whenever he's out of town. Mm. She says she suspects that it could have been an angry lover that was lashing out at Jacques. Mm -hmm. So police look into Jacques' business dealings to see if they can find someone with a motive. But when they do, they come across an unexpected lead. According to an anonymous member of the Mossler's household staff, they accuse Candy of being the one that has the affair. Mm. She's been seen canoodling with a young man named Melvin Lane Powers. And this turns out to be a bombshell piece of information because the movie star Handsome Melvin is also Candy's 21-year-old nephew. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Okay, so basically here's how it went down. In late 1961, Candy got a call from her big sister, Babe, in Aww, Arizona. Babe. Not enough people named Babe these days. Absolutely not. Probably because of the pig. But <laughs> let's change that. So her big sister, babe, lives in Arizona. She calls Candy to tell her that her son, Melvin, has just been sentenced to 90 days in jail for committing fraud. So Melvin, he he grew up in Alabama. Then the family moved to Arizona. He'd always been an aimless boy, quote unquote, an aimless boy. Mm -hmm. He rarely showed up for school or did his homework. And after getting expelled from being absent too many times, he got himself a job in Michigan selling magazine subscriptions. But when he tries to take advantage of an 89-year-old customer by selling him $20,000 worth of stock oh, in no. a fake... <laughs> he made up a magazine subscription company oh, and then God. tried to sell an, uh, like an, a 90-year-old man stock in this oh non-existent God. company he gets caught because i said i said man but it's customer so it could have been a woman yeah whoever it was they'd been around the block a time or two and they were just like hello police <laughs> oh shit and so he gets caught so essentially babe calls her sister hoping that under candy's guidance her son mel can turn his life around so candy agrees to take her nephew in and it's around December 1961 when that happens, um, after his release from jail. So Mel moves to the Mossler Mansion in Houston, and Jacques gives Mel a job at one of his loan companies, basically as a repo man. And it turns out he's great at it. Sounds and fun. he should be, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he should be great at it because he's being being given free room and board in a three-story mansion. Yeah. That includes having private chef cooked meals. Fuck. He yeah, they give him um, his own Thunderbird. Um, it like he's he's living large yeah. and rent free. Yeah, there are some odd perks as well, though, namely cosmetic surgeries. What? At Candy's insistence, Mel has first his tonsils removed, okay. then his ears pinned so that they don't stick out Why? anymore. Because I guess they stuck out. Yeah. And his acne scars removed. And finally, he gets circumcised. Okay. So. Wow. So. So. Yeah. Glow up. A glow up for Mel in Houston. <laughs> All over. Penis Head glow to up. toe. Who knew? Glow up from the crotch up. <laughs> 
About a year and a half later, in June of 1963, the gravy train for Mel stops very abruptly. Jacques not only fires Mel, he has security escort him out of the mansion. Mm -mm. And soon after, Jacques packs up and leaves Houston for Key Biscayne. And that's one of the six properties that he owns in the United States. So he's going to go to Florida to get away. Okay. And he moves there alone. So when people ask Candy where Jacques is and what happened, why he decided to kick Mel out of the house, she says it's because Mel wanted to start his own business that conflicted with Jacques' business interests. And she says Jacques moved to Florida just for business reasons, because he's opening yet another bank in Miami and he needs to be in town to get it up and running. Sure. Sure. So after he gets kicked out of the Mossler mansion, Mel moves 24 miles south of Houston to Webster, Texas, where he starts a business selling mobile homes. So this is where police find him on July 3rd, 1964, three days after the murder. They question him. Mel tells police that on the night of Jacques' murder, he was in Houston at the movies. But the problem is he doesn't remember what movie he saw and he doesn't remember what theater he saw it in oh sure i that happens to me all the time i just forget a thing that just happened it's just a blur of entertainment (laughs) you're just he wasn't used to all those pictures coming at him so fast moving pictures (laughs) they're talkies (laughs) what mel doesn't know is that the police have already looked into him they've been investigating him for Mm. a couple days they learned that on the afternoon of june 29th 1964 mel arrived at the houston airport with a suitcase bought a one-way ticket to miami and landed there later that day see that's the thing about being hot is people notice you when you go (laughs) places people they're like hey did you see a guy that looks like he should be in the yes i did yes i did it's like did you see a normal looking guy probably Were his ears sticking out? No, they were pinned tight back to his head. (laughs) I saw a hot guy, all right. (laughs) Yeah, everyone. (laughs) It's such a good point. Everyone's going to remember Mel. Yeah. Him blazing into the airport. Also, why did you buy a one-way ticket? Absolutely. Never fucking do that. Even What if you're are you only... doing? Yeah. Suspicious. Okay. Uh, then, once he got in Miami, according to an eyewitness... He goes to a bar called the Stuffed Shirt Lounge at the Holiday Inn. Yeah, he does. Genius. Oh, I want to be there now. If anybody's grandma has a matchbook from the Stuffed Shirt Lounge. Or one of those little stirry things that they... Yes. Or a napkin. Anything. A napkin. From the Miami Holiday Inn bar, the Stuffed Shirt Lounge. (laughs) We will pay you a pretty penny for that thing. Whatever. Literally a penny. But (laughs) But it'll be pretty. It'll be real. We'll shine it. (laughs) Okay, so this this bar in the Holiday Inn is right near Jacques' condo. All right. At the bar, Mel asks the bartender for an empty soda bottle. He leaves, bottle in hand, and then at 1 a.m. the same night, Mel comes back into the bar and orders a double scotch. See, don't be hot and suspicious. An empty fucking bottle? Like, what are you... That isn't an order. No, don't just go around in the world... Acting like people aren't going to be like, I was hoping he'd come back. Right. And then he did. Right. Or also like, yeah, there was this weird guy who came in that night. Like, don't be weird and have people remember you because you got an empty bottle. Also, because if you're hot, but then you turn out to be weird, people remember you even more. Right. Because that's the weird hot guy. 
weird Hawkeye, which is usually they're either suave or they're just kind of nothing. Or like a But douche. if you're weird and hot, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. Stop it. It's like those ears are pinned back, aren't they? They used to stick out. <laughs> Wait right. a second. You're newly circumcised. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, you have that swagger I can tell you recently had you, surgery. <laughs> you have the vibe of a newly circumcised man. And you can't fool me. Oh, God. Okay. So basically around 430 in the morning, the same time that Candy goes back to the condo and discovers Jacques' body, Mel's back at the Miami airport buying himself a ticket back to Houston. Dude. Also, don't go at weird times to places. Like, people will remember you. Can you imagine you're the woman that works at, like, the American Airlines desk, and here comes, you know, the James Dean. Yeah. Of your era. <laughs> I think Jay, I think that was James Dean. <laughs> oh, it was James Dean. He actually had a, he had a shoot down Here in comes Florida. basically James Dean. He's alive and well at this moment, maybe. But weird. But weird. Super weird. Okay, so obviously caught in a lie during questioning, police arrest Mel and at his Webster office and they charge him with capital murder. So with Mel behind bars, the police obtain a search warrant and scour his office and they find a photo of Mel and Candy cozied up together at a nightclub Mm-mm. and they and some letters from Candy to Mel in which she calls him, quote, my darling. And also there's an excerpt that reads, quote, the image of your face is before me. I can almost feel your face against mine. I could not think of life without you. I love you. I need you. I long for you. Auntie, Auntie Barbie. <laughs> Love Auntie Candy. Auntie Candy. That's what I meant. Auntie Candy. I was giving me the creepiest vibes I've ever. P.S. How's that circumcision going? <laughs> As news spreads about Mel's arrest and Candy's possible ties to Jacques' murder, all of Houston, of course, it's like shockwaves, Lose right? It, yeah. Gawkers drive by the River Oaks mansion in droves, hoping to get a glimpse of the now infamous Candy Mossler, so much so that she has to hire security guards and police have to come and direct the heavy traffic in her neighborhood. Wow. Yeah. But she's not there. She's been admitted to St. Luke's Hospital for something called, quote, nervous strain. Oh, I have that. I have that. Yeah. Can I go to a, can I go away to a resort now? Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> Buy your way into St. Luke's Hospital. She couldn't have had it too bad though, because she invites journalists to interview her at her bedside. Mm. Or I should say she welcomes them. Maybe okay. they showed up and she was like, sounds good to me. Yeah. She calls her alleged affair with Mel absurd and denies that she or he had anything to do with Jacques' murder. Then she transfers herself. To the Mayo Clinic for right. further medical treatment. Yeah. And she rents a, an apartment nearby for her kids and for their nanny. Mm. She remains at the Mayo Clinic for the next year wow. while Mel remains behind bars. Yeah. Wow. She just kind of posts up and the police continue their investigation. Candy only leaves Rochester once during this time, and that's flying to D.C. to visit Jacques' grave at the Arlington National Cemetery on the anniversary of his burial. She insists that she loved Jacques with all her heart, and she never was with him for his money, declaring publicly that she, quote, would have been happy with him in a telephone booth. 
So then uh, Candy agrees to one last interview with the Miami Herald in which she states that Jacques was experiencing a mental decline in the last months of his life. Also claiming that one of Jacques' alleged male lovers had been sending him love letters and even tried to blackmail him for $75,000. The media frenzy continues, and despite her efforts, the public's outcry for Candy's arrest grows louder and louder. Mm-mm. Because none of this... Yeah, I mean, imagine if she were somehow innocent. Yeah. All of this behavior really yeah, but- says the opposite. But maybe the nephew got sent away. Nephew got sent away, and she was like, "I gotta fix this with my husband. I can't. I'm not gonna leave him for my fucking 21 year old nephew. I need to fix this. You know, you need to go away. Sends away the nephew. The nephew's so irate that he, on his own accord, is like, "Well, maybe if I kill the husband, she'll be with me." Hmm. And kills him, and she has nothing to do with it. But why would she get home at four thirty in the morning? Uh, yeah, it, here's the thing: if she went to the hospital for like she was getting migraines, I mean, like yeah. that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, she's like, "Hey, kids, if they have a nanny yeah. that travels with them, Stay where's home. the nanny? Where right. she's, or did she not bring them? I mean, there's just there's yeah. so many questions yeah. and concerns. Uh, yeah. Okay, so on July twentieth. 1965, Candy's informed of her impending arrest. Uh So the outcry actually gets answered. So she agrees to fly from the Mayo Clinic back to Miami to surrender rather than let the news outlets capture a salacious arrest photo. But when she lands in Miami, the media is there waiting for her, of course. They hit her with a flurry of questions about whether or not she murdered Jacques or whether or not she was sleeping with her nephew, who's half her age. Candy maintains her composure, smiles, and says to reporters, quote, well, nobody's perfect. (gasps) (laughs) I mean, that is an understatement of the century. It's really true, though. It is true. (laughs) It's you can't say it's not true. Okay. Okay. So Candy and her nephew, Mel, they have a joint trial that begins January 1966 in Miami. And it's, of course, like the event of the decade. Mm -hmm. More than 40 national and local news outlets have seats in the courtroom. People line up around the block to get in. And those lucky enough that do get a seat bring packed lunches so they don't lose their seat. Wow. Having to get up and go get something to eat. Candy arrives to court dressed to the nines, of course, as one of her defense attorneys would later put it, quote, you would have thought she was a movie star walking the red carpet. Damn. In their opening statement, the prosecution makes their argument clear. They believe that Candace conspired with her nephew Mel to have Jacques killed while she was at the hospital for her headaches with the kids, thereby giving her a solid alibi. And now that Jacques is dead, Candace stands to inherit his entire fortune worth at least $7 million then, which is $60 million today. So Candy and Mel, their lead defense attorney is a, a lawyer named Percy Foreman, who is a shark of a defense attorney who would later go on to defend James Earl Ray, the man who assassinated Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. And so... Foreman argues that Jacques is to blame for his own death, bold, having business dealings and secret love affairs with shady characters. In his opening argument, he claims that Jacques was, quote, as ruthless in business as any pirate who ever sailed the seven seas and whose, quote, insatiable 
sex appetite, unquote, left him vulnerable to attacks and blackmail. Mm. So there's zero evidence to back up any of those claims. But that is he came out the gate. Yeah. During the trial, Foreman calls no witnesses to the stand. Instead, he lets the prosecutors call their witnesses. These are mostly people who claim to have seen Mel and Candy getting frisky at the Mossler home or on ski trips or at concerts or in nightclubs. And then <laughs> so lots he of just, places. yeah, just kind of all over the place. Yeah. Then he picks apart those eyewitness accounts and tries to discredit them while also simultaneously discrediting Jacques. Witnesses recount seeing Mel and Candy being, quote, too passionate for relatives. Uh, uh, that's that's uh, all passionate is too passionate. Uh, for the word passion and relatives <laughs> yeah. need, need not be anywhere near no. each other. One witness recalls seeing the two disappear into a trailer at the Mossler Ranch together only to go in after and find the bed, quote, rumpled up. Unquote. Mm -hmm. One of Mel's co-workers recalls several occasions where Mel bragged about being able to get whatever he wanted from Candy if he gave her oral sex. The witnesses' testimonies are so sexually inappropriate that at one point the judge rules that no one under the age of 21 <laughs> can remain in the courtroom wow. during the proceedings. X-rated. Saucy. Several witnesses come forward to say that Candace had propositioned them to murder Jacques in the year leading up to his death. One man known around town for his struggles with drug addiction says Candace offered him $25,000 to kill Jacques. He planned to do it with a car bomb, mm. but he was arrested for something else before he was able to do that. Wow. He also claims to have encountered Mel in jail after Mel was arrested and he claims that Mel told him that he killed Jacques. So he basically, he confessed to this <laughs> other guy. D don't buy that. D doesn't seem the most solid, like, person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In his closing statement, which was five hours long oh. and required three intermissions. No. Percy Foreman drives home to the jury that Candace is a sweet, innocent woman and that Mel is just an impressionable, innocent young boy slash nephew. Got it. After three days of deliberation, the jury comes back with a verdict of not guilty <gasps> for both Mel and Candace. Shut up. For real. They both break down in tears and later thank each member of the jury. They go outside share a quick kiss, hop into a gold Cadillac convertible, and drive away. Okay, they gave each other... Oh, that's like such a fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. Gold Cadillac. Okay. And they left together. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just like... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Can okay. So Candy and Mel spend the next two or so years living together back <sighs> at the Mossler Mansion in Houston. They just like flaunted it at and yeah. everyone. Yeah, well, your old friend uh, Double Jeopardy is in place, yeah. so they're free. They're free and easy. They build an eight-foot stone wall around the house to try and regain some semblance of privacy, but people still come in from all over to drive by and in the hope of catching a glimpse of either of them. Mm -hmm. Candy's fellow socialites and friends, of course, are less enthused. They stop inviting her to parties and all charity events, but none of this stops Candy. She takes over running Jacques' companies and opens a few businesses of her own. Oh my God. 
At one point, she opens her own music publishing company so that she can sell songs she's been writing over the years. And allegedly, Judy Garland expresses interest in recording some of Candy's music. What? Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, 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 uh. But, you know, she did open a music. Pu- I mean, it's just basically like her world. Totally. It's her world. Totally. She also soon begins to regain her social standing. She starts, of course, she basically goes to charity events Mm -hmm. and works the scene, gets in there, starts. So she's taking pictures and like going to events with with Harry Belafonte, with Aretha Franklin. She actually poses for a picture with Martin Luther King Jr. after making a generous donation to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So she's she's using you know, her generosity and, you know, using her money basically to buy her way back into society. Yeah. All the while, Mel and Candace are still growing strong, even if Candace denies their romantic relationship publicly. They're seen at Broadway performances, baseball games. Mel allegedly buys Candace an engagement ring during a trip to Switzerland. (laughs) Oh, my God. And... He's actually becoming a successful businessman of his own. He gets into real estate and he buys a piece of property for $2,000, sells it for $110,000. Like he's in the mix. They're, They're making money. But after a few years together, Mel starts cheating on Candy. No. What? (laughs) They were so good together. I thank it. No. Okay. So Mel wants to break up with her, but he tells friends that he's afraid to because she has a quote, crazy streak. She quote, has a fiery temper and she's unpredictable. So essentially, you know, he's, he's kind of, he had a good for a while. Now he wants out and thinks he can make it on his own. Candy has a hunch that Mel's been cheating because you're not going to get anything by Candy. She's been around the block a time or two. Absolutely. So they start arguing a lot during one argument at the old mansion. Mel allegedly goes into the bathroom, slams the door and Candy fires three shots from a 45 into the door. She somehow doesn't hit him. What? I guess it was a huge bathroom. Yeah, it is a mansion. Yeah. So basically that's, you know, they finally decide to call it quits. Mel moves out of the mansion. He grows out his hair and his mustache and he basically is a bachelor from then on. Wow. And he just goes and he goes into his own own business. Candy enjoys a single life herself through the rest of the 60s. She throws parties. She has lots of boyfriends over the years. Most notable is Chuck Berry, who actually writes about his relationship no. with Candy in his 1987 autobiography. Yep. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> What the fuck is this woman? She's everything in the world. Yeah. She's all of us yeah. and none of us. Right. In 1971, Candy settles down once more at age 51 and marries an electrical contractor and nightclub owner named Barnett Garrison, who is 32 years old. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, girl. What's up? Do Why not? Do it. <laughs> if you can. Yeah. Of course... Candy keeps the legend of her, quote, fiery temper alive. When Barnett starts cheating on Candy, she finds out. Yeah, I know. It's come on, guys. 
It's tough. It's tough, especially back in the early 70s. <laughs> so she finds out that he's going to this go-go bar, which I assume means a strip club, but it was just kind of like maybe the it late was like, 60s. Yeah, like you couldn't take your clothes off, though, like a burlesque yeah, type of thing. But there's still women in cages. Right. So, you know, right. it's like sexy times. So the, she finds out there's one he likes to go to. Uh, it mysteriously burns down. Holy shit. Uh-huh. The fire department suspects Candy of arson, essentially. She denies it, saying only that she, quote, certainly would understand doing such a thing. Yeah. She's like, yeah, bitch. <laughs> yeah. I don't like it. No charges are ever filed against her. Of course not. And then just over a year later, in August of 1972... Barnett is found bloody and unconscious on the Houston mansion's patio. No. His gun is beside him, but he looks as though he's been beaten up and fallen from the roof of the house. Three stories up. Oh, my God. Uh, police enter the home. They find Candy's locked herself inside her bedroom. When they finally get her to open the door, she says she, quote, already shot him, unquote. But there's no bullet wounds on Barnett's body. And Candy is incoherent either drunk or high barnett survives his injuries but he's left in a vegetative state and he receives care at a nursing home for 25 years wow and dies in 2009 he never recovers oh my god there's an author named mickey herskovitz who's researching candy's life for a biography and never ends up getting published Mm -hmm. But they did all the research, and he said that he heard from one of Candy's relatives that she'd hired two goons to beat Barnett up for cheating on her. This has never been proven, and Barnett's injuries and eventual death were ruled accidental. So it's never proven. Yeah. In 1973, two of Candy's adopted sons filed a lawsuit against her, claiming that she'd stolen a portion of their trust fund and had only given them $350 a month. Um, They also describe her rampant prescription drug abuse and call her a serial liar. It's unclear what comes of this lawsuit, if anything. But two years later, in 1975, Candy cuts three of her adopted children out of her will. Mm -hmm. She only leaves money to her oldest daughter, Rita, her second child, Norman Jr., and her youngest adopted son, Eddie. In October 1976, while on a work trip in Miami, Candy is found dead in her suite at the Fountain Blue Hotel at age 62. She had been given Demerol from her doctor to treat one of her headaches, but she had already taken sleeping pills, and the combination of those drugs caused an overdose. Um, Mel attends Candy's funeral with his new girlfriend, It's held at Arlington National Cemetery, where she is buried next to Jacques, the man she claimed to love all the way to the end. Oh, my God. Mel continues on his path of yo-yoing wealth. At one point, he buys himself a 142-foot yacht, which is said to be one of the largest in the Western Hemisphere. Oh. Then he loses everything. Then he gains it back again. (sighs) So it's it's crazy. Yeah. 2010, Mel passes away at 68 years old. The death certificate rules his death a death by pneumonia. He also had a history of prescription drug use, Mm -hmm. which may or may not have contributed to his death. With Candy and Mel both dead and those close to the case fading away, it appears that we will never know for sure what happened to Jacques Mossler. The evidence does point 
to murder and potentially Mel and Candace being involved in that murder. Yeah. As the author Mickey Herskowitz tells Skip Hollinsworth in his article, quote, it was hard for anyone who met Candy to imagine that she could kill anything, even a flea. To be honest, she haunts me to this day. And that is the truly crazy story of the notorious Mrs. Mossler as told by Skip Hollinsworth. Oh, wow. Twists <laughs> and turns and having sex with your nephew and circumcisions and so many twists and turns. Alleged, alleged, allegedly, alleged, allegedly, alleged, probably, but, but allegedly. But seems like lots of people <laughs> saw it. But, right, but it seems knows? impossible not to for it to be true. Wow. <sighs> Two wild stories this week. I mean, crazy stories. And also yeah. a, an episode that's almost two hours long as a, <laughs> as a huge comeback. Welcome back 2022. Let's go. Let's do 20 hours and 22 <laughs> minutes just to make up, just to make it like, you know, let's marathon this thing. Let's do it. Come on. Uh, no one can stop us. Yeah. This is the, the first of. Oh my God, we're almost at six years. Yep, we Wait, are. This month. this month. Holy shit. Six years, Georgia. I, that's the second longest relationship I've ever been in. Hey, girl. Hi. I'm going to get you an engagement ring in Switzerland <laughs> and get my ears pinned back as a sign of my love for you. You know what I'm going to get for you? What? Circumcised. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, well, happy new year, Karen. And happy new year to you. Thank you. Happy uh, new year to all that. Nude year. Happy nude year. Happy nude year to all of us. Yeah. May it be very nude. Um, yeah. It's so nice to have had a break, but it's great to be back. Yeah. We're going to uh, make this year our own. We're going to make it our own. We're going to pin back the ears of this year and show it who's boss. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's yeah. make this year our nephew lover and do it. <laughs> we can and we will. Thanks, you guys, for listening. Yeah. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening, guys. Happy New Year. Let's keep it positive. Woo. We, we know it's tough. Woo. But hey. <laughs> Woo. Woo. <laughs> Stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Woo. 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 Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Associate producer, Alejandra Keck. Engineer and mixer, Stephen Ray Morris. Researchers, Jay Elias and Haley Gray. Send us your hometowns and your fucking hoorays at myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. And for more information about this podcast, our live shows, merch, or to join the fan cult, go to myfavoritemurder.com. Rate, review, and subscribe.